the book of Acts. We're in chapter 16 in the book of Acts. There's Bibles in the back if you'd like to grab one by the, by the sound booth. As the practice of our church, we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we are following from last week in chapter 16 where we ended. And we'll pick up where we left off in Acts chapter 16, looking at verses 11 through 24 in what we have been called a spirit-empowered mission. We've been walking as Luke, the author of Acts, who also wrote the gospel according to Luke, has been telling us all that Jesus continues to do, healing, touching lives, and most importantly, changing lives for the sake of the gospel. Last week, when we looked at chapter 16, the beginning of the week, we discussed how the work, how, how God was working in his sovereignty as he guided and he led Paul and his entourage through to the city of Troas. If we remember, the apostle Paul is now in chapter 16 on his second missionary journey. The first missionary journey, or after the first missionary journey, and after the, the council of, uh, of uh, the Jerusalem council, Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas decide to return and to revisit some of the churches that they had originally planted along the way in Asia Minor. And if you remember, they went because they wanted to continue their discipleship, to encourage the brothers, to strengthen the brothers, to teach the brothers, but also to give them the decision that was rendered in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem council. But according to the end of Acts chapter 15, this dynamic duo that Paul and Barnabas got into this heated discussion, a heated debate, and it was all about whether or not they should take Paul, uh, excuse me, John Mark with them. If you remember, he had deserted them on their first missionary trip. And Paul and Barnabas, dynamic duo, got into this heated debate, and uh, they decided at the end that they would go their separate ways. That Barnabas would take John Mark, which is his cousin, and go to Cyprus, and Paul was going to take Silas and move on into Asia Minor. And that's exactly what they did. And we find Paul and Silas at Lystra, one of the places that they planted a church. And there they find Timothy. Timothy was, was a young man who was uh, uh, half Greek, half Jew. But in that day, because his mother was a Jew, he was considered Jewish. So Paul had him circumcised. Paul did so because he recognized that in order for him to get into or get access into the synagogue where the Jewish people were gathering so he could declare to them the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the one that's been promised, he had to have Timothy circumcised to be a member of his entourage and, and be Jewish in descent, Timothy uh, it was necessary, otherwise it would have obstructed his access or his effectiveness to the Jewish people. We said last week that when it came to the effectiveness of the gospel, Paul was quite open to different methods and, and different ways of doing things and following certain rituals. But when it came to the essential truths of the gospel, that salvation was a free gift by grace alone to those who would repent and believe in Jesus, he would not budge an inch. We talked about having open-handed, closed-handed methods of ministry. Ways of ministry, open hand. We're open to different methods, but we're closed about the certain essential principles of the gospel. So Timothy gets circumcised, and Paul gets to preach the gospel to his Jewish brethren. Last week, we observed that God led his people in many different ways. Paul and Barnabas, uh, excuse me, Paul and Silas and his team headed north and west through Asia Minor. And, and the triune God forbid him 
as he was moving westward, northwestward, to go south into Emphasis, a city, and to go north through uh, that region into Bithynia. And, and the ministry team wound up going west-north to Troas, located in Asia Minor. It was, it was a place of embarkment for that trip to Greece. Now, I'll just show you again quickly the map so you can follow along what I'm saying. Antioch, where they started, Tarsus, Derby, Lystra is where they're going. And as they were traveling, 500 miles, by the way, on foot. Okay? So it's not like a one-day trip. You know, taking a train. Okay, they're walking. And the Spirit and the Holy Spirit and Jesus stopped them from going south here towards Ephesus, Thyatira, and then stopped them from going north to Bithynia. So they wound up heading west and landed right here on the border here in Troas. And you see they will go then to Neapolis and to Philippi, which our text will tell us. Okay? And, and I think it's important to note that while they were at Troas, a vision comes to Paul. And he has this vision, and this man in Macedonia, which is in Greece, uh, urging him to come to Macedonia. It's a cry. He says, come and help us. I think it's important to note that many times when the Bible talks about people crying out, it has to do with salvation or, or being saved from a predicament or being saved from their sins, but being saved from something. Now, we don't know exactly what this mission, uh, excuse me, the vision was all about, but we do know from the text, chapter 16, verses 9 through 11, that they concluded, they discussed the matter among the ministry team, and they decided and concluded that it was God who spoke to Paul in the vision, and it was the call to preach, looking for the last, uh, verse, uh, last part of verse 10 of chapter 16, to preach the gospel to them. So the cry was for the gospel, to come to Macedonia. We need your help. We need the message of the gospel. And they did what we all should do. Just let me point this out. When God makes it clear to you and tells you exactly what his will is, there's only one thing to do. They promptly obeyed. Right? God says, this is what I want. This is where your sin is. This is what I want you to repent from. Our job is not to argue and discuss the matter as if we're on equal territory with God. We are to obey, submit, and say, yes, Lord. You're Lord, I'm not. And that's what they do. They promptly obeyed him. Now, Macedonia was located in northern Greece. And after a short stop in uh, an island called Samothrace, and then they went from there, they went to Neapolis, and then from there, about 8 or 10 miles to Philippi. Now, in your Bibles, you have a letter called the Letter to the Philippians. That's this church where we're going to see today. In fact, the letter was written shortly after the Apostle Paul went and preached the gospel and a church gave birth. And we'll see that's actually our text this morning. Now, the city of Philippi, I just want to tell you a little bit about the city, was, of course, in Europe. It was in the northern section of Roman providence of Macedonia. It was about 800 miles from Rome, 8 to 10 miles from Neapolis, which is an important city right on the coast. It was very important because it had a lot of natural resources. Um, they had lots of timber, lots of metals, particularly silver and gold. In 359 BC, it was Philip of Macedon, gained control over the region, obviously named it after him, Philippi of Macedonia. His son was Alexander the Great, and he was his successor. And when he conquered and took over that area, he brought a lot of, 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 of Greek culture to that, to that place. And then when Rome took power, the Roman army conquered Macedonia in 168 B.C. They had a civil war around 44 B.C. They lost. Rome had come to power. And 
I say all that because the city had become very Roman. There was a Roman colony there. There was a, a very big uh, uh, place where all the military would go. In fact, next week, when we see the jailer, we're going to see a prison scene. Uh, a lot of the jailers were old, older uh, military officers that now ran the jails. A man by the name Octavia gave all the rights afforded to a Roman citizen born in Rome the same rights if you live in Philippi. Very Roman. The city had a lot of variety of cults and religions, different temples being built to different gods. Um, the Jewish community there um, was not very large. We'll see in a moment. Under uh, Claudius in 49 AD, he pushed all the Jews out of Rome. And since this had such a Roman flavor, um, the Jews weren't very welcome there. Anti-Semitic behavior didn't start, you know, the years ago, a few years ago, but back then as well. And because Philippi was modeled after Rome, Jewish people just didn't feel a lot of love there. So our text this morning, I, I give you that background, in this city, reveals to us, the first time Paul goes to, to Macedonia, to Greece, revealed to us not only the sovereign work of God, but the power of God, the power of the gospel, coming into three very different lives. The power of the gospel coming into three very different people's lives. They were different ethnically. They were different socially, biologically, culturally, and economically. All this happens in Philippi. We'll look at the first two people today, and then we'll look at the last one, which is the jailer, next week. So if you're following along, here's our outline. The persons whom God changes. We're going we're gonna, to... We're gonna, Step back, look at this picture, and look at the, the two people that God comes to and changes them through the power of the gospel. Two, the power of the gospel that changes them. We'll see how God works in these lives differently, yet both come to faith in Jesus Christ. So the persons whom God changes, the power of God that changes them, and then the particular results of that change, and how, how did they respond, and what happened around them as the change comes into their life, as the power of the gospel changed their life. The person, the power, and the particular results. So that's where we're looking at today. Number one, look with me in chapter 16, verse 11. It talks about Lydia, the seller of purple. Now, remember, Paul, verse 11, excuse me, verse 11 says, so setting sail from Troas, we, that includes Luke, and this entourage, this team, this ministry team, we made a direct voyage to Samanthras. That means from, from, from Asia Minor, there's an island on the way to Macedonia. They stop at Samanthras. What's, imp- what's, what's interesting about that is the term we made a direct voyage is a nautical expression that means the wind was at their back. Actually, the Bible said that they went 156 miles in two days. When they come back in chapter 20, it took them five. Now, I don't want to make a big deal of that, but if you put yourself on that voyage for a moment, you hear a call, you hear the vision, you know the will of God, you promptly obey, and all of a sudden the boat is like, zoom! you got to be thinking, man, God is in this, right? Do you ever, you ever open your Bible and you turn to the exact place or you're sharing the message with someone and their eyes open up and you're like, I'm, this is all of God. That happened to Rick, Pastor Ricky and I this week. We went to Del Mar Place. We go there on a monthly basis. We sing some music. We open scripture together. 
And uh, to my shame, to my shame, on my way there, I told Ricky, I'm just, I'm, I'm so busy, we're just going to have to stop going here for a while. I, I just can't keep up what we're doing. It's just, just church is growing, you know. So that's what we did. I said, oh, that's it. When I get there, didn't see the lady in charge. We open our Bibles. Ricky did a great job, leads them in music. They even have some requests. And we open up our scriptures. We go to Romans 5. And I'm, and I'm speaking out of Romans 5, 1 and 2. And as I get to the gospel, one of the ladies' eyes get that big. Paper covers her mouth. Her eyes well up. And I'm thinking, something's going on here. So after I got finished with my sentence, I said, you know, what's well, a small crowd. And she said, you confirmed everything God has been speaking to my heart about since yesterday. And I thought, oh, my, I guess we're coming back. <laughs> we're, we're going back. So this is like, yes, God is in this. And the following day, they go to Neapolis, verse 12. And from there to Philippi, about eight to ten mile journey, is the leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. We remained there in the city a couple of days. Verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Half of 14, we're going to read. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. So what we see Paul is when he lands and he goes to Philippi, he waits a couple of days because he's going to do what he's been doing, and that is speak to the Jewish people, to share the gospel with the Jewish people. But, so he waits till the Sabbath, just a couple of days, but notice there is no synagogue. Again, probably because in that day it took 10 men to gather to start a synagogue, and most commentators would tell you that there probably wasn't any influence, uh, Hebrew influence, and Jewish men in that area, so there was no synagogue. So Paul and his team find out, listen, there are a bunch of women down at the, at the uh, river, outside the gate, and they're gathering for prayer. Now, we don't know whether or not these ladies knew the apostle. We can only imagine. You know, in comes the apostle Paul. There's a gathering of women. And in comes the apostle Paul. And maybe they're like, oh, this guy looks like the apostle Paul. What, what is this religious Bible-thumping Pharisee doing here? I don't know. I mean, they didn't have selfies to send. I mean, you, know, you don't know. Maybe they, you know, in a rock and sent it. I don't know, but... They, you know, you got to wonder, like, what's he doing here? Now, we don't know whether they knew him or not, but we do know, we do know, Paul goes to this gathering and sits down. That's the posture of a teacher. Probably somewhat significant in the sense that it wasn't a big crowd. If you get a large crowd, you have to sit up on the hill or, or stand up. But he sits here as a posture of, of teaching. Now, I want to point out that many people today say that Paul, in the Bible, when they read Ephesians and other places of leadership and headship for men, many feminists today say that he is, Paul, one of the leading male chauvinists around. But notice what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't say, okay, you ladies, I see there's a gathering here. Can you tell me where the men are? Or, you know what, I got something I really want to share with you, but where are your husbands? He doesn't do that. He sits down and he shares with them and he declares to them, the gospel, he, he, he engages them because he believes that they are just as dignified and worthy of hearing the gospel as men are. Now, Paul, in his pharisaical prejudices, I'm sure he had before this, as a Pharisee before his Christian experience, before Jesus knocked him upside the head and off the horse, he had been taught to pray 
This is his prayer. God, I thank you that I am not a Gentile, I am not a slave, and I am not a woman. Obviously, the gospel changed him. In fact, what you have here in Philippi is Paul encountering Gentiles, slaves, and women. The very people he prayed that he wasn't, he comes in contact with. In fact, in Galatians, he'll say, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, now the women in the church in that day and the women here at our church must be treated, and I believe we do a good job with love, respect, and full dignity as any other person. We must never get to the place must never get to the place where we acknowledge different roles in the church, which we should, or in our home, as a means, though, of devaluing anyone. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's complementary. Different roles, different functions, but equal in value, dignity, and worth. Our gender differences, our God-given authority and roles, do not alter someone's value. Dignity, respect. I think you see that in the New Testament. So Paul sits in the midst of this gathering, verse 14, tells that there's a woman, her name is Lydia. Lydia Thyatira, who's a seller of purple goods. So Lydia's a businesswoman. That's who Lydia is. She's a woman who, who deals in dyed cloth. Her hometown, Thyatira, was very well known for dyes. So she either dyed them stuff herself, or she had connections and, and links to her city where she can get these dyed clothing, which is very expensive. Luke doesn't mention that just because, you know, as a secondary thought. That's important to the text. That's important to understand who she is. It marks her as a person of means. Purple goods were expensive. Purple goods were often associated with royalty. Emperors and Roman senators, as well as wealthy, wore purple garments as a status symbol. It was not only a sign of loyalty and royalty, but of beauty. Her business was a lucrative one. In fact, the invitation in verse 15 for Paul and his entourage to come to her house had to include a larger home where she could occupy four or five extra people with servants to, and to, to care for them. And of all the churches planted by Paul, the Philippian church and their generosity stood out. According to Philippians and Corinthians, they continue to help Paul. They continue to send, um, you know, uh, financial support as he lived on mission with Jesus. One could only wonder if Lydia was one of those principal contributors. I think she was. So she was a moral woman as well. She was a worshiper of God, the Bible says, which means that she was a Gentile. She wasn't a full proselyte, but she was, was seeking after. She was being wooed in by the one true God and considered like Cornelius, if you remember him, as a God-fearer. So she had left her polytheistic multiple gods beliefs and sought by the grace of God to worship the one true God seeking the God of the Hebrew Scriptures. So she was admirable. admirable. She probably was very disciplined, she had her own business. It was a lucrative business. She was morally right. She was conservative. She was smart, decent, and a spiritual woman. That's Lydia, a well-to-do Gentile. But look with me to the next person. Verse 16 on your Bibles. And we were going to the place of prayer, and we were met by another person, a slave girl 
who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, saying, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation, verse 18a. And this she kept doing for many days. Now, Thyatira, excuse me, Lydia, and the connection with this slave girl shows a continuing narrative, a continuous narrative. It, it, it really does contrast this mainstream figure, Lydia, and this unusual slave girl. When Paul and his team come to the city, come to the, uh, on the Sabbath, they encounter the slave girl. Now, in the original language, the, the word girl, just so you know, indicates the girl is maybe 11, 12, preteen, early teen. This is a kid. This is a kid. And the Bible says she had a spirit of divination. If you have an NIV, had a spirit by which she predicted the future. The original language, it's Numa Pythona, a spirit python. You're thinking, wow, that's weird. It is weird. If you know anything about Greek mythology, it had to do with Apollos, who had this oracle in, in, in Delphi, and then he, was a, he killed a snake, and, and the spiritist, the priestess that was there, was said to have this pythona spirit that they could predict the future. They were fortune tellers. And in that day, and in that culture, no commander would set out on a military uh, campaign. No emperor would sign an edict into decree without consulting one of these soothsayers, foretellers, python spirits. What is also interesting is that in Philippi, there was a shrine not far from there of the Pythian Apollo. So the slave girl, the slave girl, this kid, was identified with that cult, that spirit, that divination, that that fortune-telling, okay? Now, we know that is completely forbidden in Scripture. Let me just make that clear. Soothsaying, sorcery, fortune-telling is forbidden in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, partly because the behavior has to do with manipulating gods, coercing gods, and manipulating gods to, to try to get something, okay? They coerce them. They don't, they don't petition God, but they coerce and they manipulate God, and that should just at least raise a flag of caution for us about our prayer life. You know, are we manipulating? Are we coercing? Are we petitioning? What is your will, sovereign God? Are we trying to coerce and manipulate God? I think of the word faith movement. Who Some people uh, say, you know, this Christian doctrine, it is not Christian. They, they teach that you put these certain words together and say certain words and that you call on God and you kind of bind him and twist his arm to do certain things as you speak reality. Guys like Hagen and Hinn and Copeland and Crouch, Pr- Fred Price, calling on things like wealth and prosperity. That's not Christian, that's pagan. That's what they did in paganism. You don't twist, you don't coerce the almighty God. But also forbidden because those who dabble in this Sorcery in this fortune telling, in this in this um, type of behavior, is dabbling and messing with evil spirits. It could be as simple as horoscopes, palm readers, you, um, Ouija boards, spirit boards, talking boards, however you call them, calling on these spirits to direct you. This slave girl, this kid, had a evil, clairvoyant gift, and obviously she was pretty good at it. She was making money for somebody. In fact, in verse 17, 
She's following Paul, and the word she's crying out is, the, is, a, is a Greek word called krazo. It means to shriek. It means to shriek. It says that she was crying out. This fortune teller was crying out. So you have in this text, I just want to give you a clear picture of this woman. She's a young girl. She's a kid. She has a pneuma python spirit, a divination, and she is fortune telling. There's a people in, that, in this day and culture who did fortune telling. And this group of people, you know what they were called? They were called, trans, they were called ventriloquists. Now, it's not the same as today, but these people, these ventriloquists, had this troubled spirit. They were inwardly tormented, and they spoke wildly. They, they cried out, and they were shrieking, and often called ventriloquists because they would speak in different voices. All of a sudden, you have this 12- and 13-year-old girl speak with a man's voice. Ventriloquist. She even knew, she even knew what, what Paul and his team were doing there. She cried out, she shrieks. These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Day after day, speaking in strange voices, speaking truth, really, to the ministry. We should not be surprised if you remember in the life of Jesus, Luke already tells us in Luke, I think it's Luke 8, Luke 4 and Luke 8. Demons come to Jesus and say, we know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. In fact, the book of James says that demons believe, yet they shudder. Demonic forces are real. They have probably a better understanding and a better theology than we do. But they hate what they know. That's the difference. They hate what they know. And this little girl, this little slave girl, knows that also. And she's hating it right now. Let let me just tell you that we believe here in this church in the Bible. We believe that Satan and demons are real. Jesus delivered demonic people on several occasions. They brought these people to Jesus because they believed also that these people were demonically oppressed. Two extremes. We've said this before. Satan doesn't exist. He doesn't exist at all, or he's the problem with everything, right? Every sin is his fault. Viewing that Satan and his emissaries are not real denies the authority and the, the, the validity of the word of God and the ministry of Jesus who said they exist, who, who, who cast them out, be quiet, evil spirit, come out. And yet saying, he's, he's involved with all my sin, it's all because of him, he made me do it denies the individual's responsibility. There are those who would say that when you see demonic oppression in the Bible, when you see this stuff, they didn't know it back then, but we know now it's just psychological. And you know what? It could be just psychological. But we like to deal with the whole person here. What that means is some may have real psychological issues, strong and real emotional and physiological problems. That's true. But it does not, it does not change the reality that we are spiritual beings who always need, as the Bible says, to submit ourselves to God, to resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's James. 
Peter says, be sober-minded, watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. What we like to do here is deal with the totality, the emotional struggles, the, the physiological struggles, the intellectual struggles, and yet still remain truthful to what the psalmist said. Where can I go? Where could I go where the Spirit of God is not present? If we don't deal with the spiritual realm, we're going to be at best incomplete, at worst deceived. It's real. Paul sees it. And he sees that this this young girl is more, uh, 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 is not so much attracted to them, but they are attacking them and verbally harassing them. She's in bondage. But notice our text says she's not only in inner bondage, she's a slave which means she's in inner bondage and she's physically in bondage. She's in double bondage. She's owned by somebody else. Scripture doesn't tell us how she got to this place, but we do know from from antiquity that when families were in debt, they would sell their children to get out of debt. They would sell their children to, to try at least get out of debt. We see that today in sex trafficking. They will go into villages and when people are in debt, they will pay the debt for the child and then they will take that child and put her in a brothel. And abuse her and, and, and sexually uh, uh, send her out as a pimp. A pimps would send her out to have sex. She's probably struggling. Think about it. I'm sold. I'm 11. Parents give her away, maybe with some inner struggles, but evil supports, but rejection. She's economically oppressed. She's physically enslaved and exploited. That's her. I want you to see that. So Lydia represents this high-class moral businesswoman. The slave girl represents the druggies the going for their next trick, their, their next drug being exploited by pimps. Those are the person whom God changes. Now, the power that changes them. 14b, one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. I love that. F.F. Bruce writes, three individuals, he's talking about the jailer too, we'll look at that next week, three individuals are singled out by Luke among those whose lives were influenced for good by the gospel at Philippi. They differ so much one from another that Luke might be thought to have selected them deliberately in order to show us how the saving power of the name of Jesus was shown in the most diverse types of men and women, end quote. Here we see in Lydia's case, God speaks through his word. God's speaking today through his word. How many people, and some of you are here, and I won't, I won't, I won't name names, but will come up to me afterward and say, I felt like I was the only one there. When you said this, did, were you looking at me? In fact, the lady that I just remember, the lady in, in Delmar Place said, the only one would ever know that you confirmed this through me is if you saw my soul. And I said, lady, I can assure you, I did not see your soul, but Jesus did. But God knows and God speaks. And, 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 and we see here in, in Lydia in Acts uh, 4, 16, 14, a glorious example of what God does in the conversion of a soul through the exposition of Scripture as Christ is unfolded and the gospel is proclaimed God, by his sovereign spirit, opens hearts and draws people to himself. Now, the word in this, in this text, paid attention, 
carries the idea of being attracted to something. Paul used the same Greek word when he spoke to Timothy about not being addicted to much wine. Don't be attracted to much wine. Don't be lured in by, by, by much wine. Don't be drawn in, enticed by too much wine. Lydia is beginning to see what Paul was saying about the gospel, and she's seeing it as wonderful and attractive. What she's probably seeing so wonderfully and attractive is that the gospel was free for those who would respond to the offer. Remember, she left her pagan, polytheistic you know, ideas, and she, she, she clung herself to the Hebrew scriptures, but there was still that moral Ten Commandments, do the right thing, live a certain way, and God will love you. He said, Paul, Peter said back in Jerusalem Council, if you remember, he says to the Jewish people who want to put these yokes, this, this law of yoke upon the Gentiles, listen, we couldn't do it. We can't live by the law to be saved. Why are we going to add this yoke? It's only going to crush them. It crushed us. It'll crush them. It's not by the law. It's not by what you do. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, through Jesus alone. So let's not put the yoke on their backs. So here's Lydia. She left the bondage of polytheistic, multiple gods, coercing, manipulating, to the one true God trying to obey the Mosaic law. And Paul comes in. She's still trying to live by the golden rule. And Paul comes in and says, no, it's by grace alone, through Christ alone. No wonder she's attracted to the gospel. She knows the burden of trying to save herself, trying to live right so that she can earn her salvation. And Paul is declaring to her that Jesus alone lived the perfect life, who lived and fulfilled the law entirely, who died on a cross, who rose from the dead. And he begins to share with her Jesus of Nazareth. She listens as he speaks about Jesus' perfect life, his death, his resurrection. She hears about the promise of the Messiah being fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. Her heart begins to open and she embraces the gift of the gospel. Jesus is the only one who lived the perfect life and earned the blessing of perfect obedience brings. He took the curse that disobedience brings. And then on the cross, for those who believe in him, the curse for your disobedience falls on him. And the blessing of his fulfilled law and perfect life falls on you. And she saw that as beautiful. She's never seen anything so royal. She's never seen anything so beautiful, so distinctive than Jesus in the gospel. And her heart responds. It's the beauty and the work of God. Second Corinthians 4 says this. And even if our gospel is veiled, her eyes were veiled at the moment before she came to faith. It is veiled to those who are perishing. In this case, the God of this world that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the imago, who is the perfect image of God. Then he says, for God, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, but God said, let light shine out of darkness. And he has shown in our hearts, believers he's talking about, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
You know, I said this last week. There are things that we ought to do. There are things that God commands us to do. There are things that God says, I want you to do. You're responsible for. And there are other things that we just cannot do. We leave that to Jesus. Here's a perfect example. Paul's given the responsibility. He's been entrusted with the good news of the gospel. God says, I'm sending you to Troas. Then I'm sending you to Macedonia. Then I'm sending you to Philippi. Keep telling people about Jesus and I'll do the rest. He alone gives new life. He alone's opened the hearts. He alone, God alone can take a heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. We are to declare the gospel, demonstrate the gospel to everyone, but ultimately... When it comes to new life, when it comes to spiritual new life, new birth, it's God's responsibility. And I want to take comfort in that. Knowing that as I share the gospel, God is going to grant those to repent. He's going to grant those to uh, receive the gospel and receive new life. John, the gospel, excuse me, the gospel calling John said this. To all those who received him, to all those who believed in him, believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, not born of blood, nor the will of the flesh or the will of man, but born of God. So we see the power of life come into Lydia. God opens her heart, makes the gospel attractive. She responds and becomes a Christian. Now, look at um, the slave girl, verse 18. Paul's having become greatly annoyed, turned and said, I command you to the Spirit. In the name of Jesus, come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. How does the gospel come to her? Look what it says. Paul was... Annoyed. No, he wasn't annoyed. He was greatly annoyed. Irked. Literally disturbed. Burdened. Really? Does it really, really say that? Yeah. The apostle was ticked off. Tired of hearing her mouth. And you know, when you see stuff like that in scripture, I want to remind you that that's how we know the Bible is true. Because like if you want to start a religion and talk about one of the greatest promoters of that religion you would say and the apostle paul saw this young girl who was 11 years old in bondage and he looked with her with deep compassion in his eyes he took her by the hand and he said young lady by the name of the lord jesus be healed young one he's annoyed makes me feel a little better about ministry myself but anyway remember this is paul this is not jesus right we, we would say that's not right if it was in the gospel. But this is Paul. He's annoyed. It says it right there. But the scripture says he didn't, he didn't heal her right away. It was many days she kept this up. Many times she kept shrieking and, and calling out and harassing and annoying Paul. People have fun figuring out why didn't Paul deal with her in the first place. I really don't know. But I will tell you, James Montgomery Boyce suggests, it's just a suggestion, that maybe... Paul waited because he knew once he did that, once he delivered her, all heck is going to break loose. And it's like, you know what? I want to come back to these ladies. I want to come back to this prayer meeting for several weeks, several days. I want to teach more about Jesus because once I deal with her, I know what happens. It happens all the time. I get dragged out, beat up, and knocked upside the head. So I'm going to wait a little while (laughs) so I can get at least some of the gospel out before I start doing stuff that's going to get me beat up. I thought, you know, that that makes sense. I don't know if it's true, but it made sense. So he turns to her and he says, in the name of Jesus, come out of her. By the authority of Jesus, that's what name means, the authority of Jesus, 
The God whom Paul proclaims is specifically tied to the divine work of Jesus and the expulsive power of the gospel is immediate at that very hour. That's an idiom, meaning instantly. What a difference, huh? Between Lydia and this slave girl. Lydia is like this responsible businesswoman. This slave girl is scarcely even a member of the human race. She is literally a piece of property in a freak show. Lydia's is very moral, very proper, religious person who knows her Bible. The slave girl is completely alienated from any moral sense of, of, of truth, of goodness. Lydia was a proud girl, who, who, a proud woman who, who was a business and, and, and you know, raised up funds and, and did well for herself. The slave girl, she's completely marginalized, marginalized and, and, and stripped of dignity. Lydia had some power, some social standing, some economic bling. But the slave girl is completely powerless, without even self-control. F.F. Bruce again said, The gospel could address and transform absolutely any condition. It is not only for the cultured and the able, nor is it only for the helpless and the broken. Listen, God changed both of them. God comes into their life by the power of the gospel in very different ways, but with the same outcome. Lydia comes to faith through prayer group, through prayer gathering, through a Bible study as they talk about Jesus, yet this, this slave girl comes into this incredible power encounter. Lydia was ready to hear the gospel as Paul declares it to her, being the Jewish Messiah. The slave girl comes face to face with the ultimate bondage breaker, the, the omnipotent liberator. Lydia needed to see how she could be freed from trying to her own, trying to obtain her own salvation through her own works, her own effort, her own morality. And the slave girl needed to be freed from her old master. Now, truth be told, both are true for both women. But at that moment, Jesus knew exactly what to do, exactly what those women needed, because Lydia needed a deliverer too. And the slave girl needed to know that it's not her own moral actions either. But God comes, and the power of the gospel, right where they are, speaks to them and delivers them and brings them to faith in Jesus Christ. There, there's, there, we can't miss this lesson. lesson. The same gospel of grace that saved the prosperous woman of great social standing is the same gospel of grace that was needed to save this young slave girl that had no standing it whatsoever. One woman of high degree, prominent. Another woman of the dregs, same grace, operating in both. Lives of change, brought out of bondage from sin, Satan, into the arms and embrace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Each confronted by grace with a different feature of Jesus' glory. Look at the results. We'll just spend a few minutes on this. Look at the results. Verse 15 with Lydia. I love this. After that, she was what? Baptized. I didn't make that up. Like, this just happened to be today's text. And her household, and we were planning on having that baptism three, four weeks ago. And her household as well, she urged us, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed on them. This, this beautiful, extraordinary businesswoman of wealth and influence had come to her Savior, and now she's being baptized. She's being brought to the lake, and be, she's right outside the lake. She's right by the river, 
and she is baptized as a believer, showing forth her union with Christ, her oneness with Jesus, and her union with the rest of God's people. She's baptized as a sign of obedience and a sign that her sins have been washed away and that her new life, her new desire is to walk with Jesus. That command to be baptized is not something Paul made up. Jesus commands his followers to be baptized. The picture of the New Testament is believe and be baptized. Matthew 28, preach the gospel, make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. If you have not been baptized, you need to see me after the service so you can be obedient to Jesus. It's not up for discussion or debate, really clearly taught in Scripture. And to deny that is in disobedience directly with Jesus Christ. The particular result, look in Lydia's life, is the fruit of her baptism. So she, she responds. We know she responds. We see the fruit. She's baptized. And now she's immediately being generous. She's twisting Paul's arm. Come and stay. In fact, that Greek word persuaded or um, prevailed is the same word that's used in Luke when they're on the road to Emmaus and, and Jesus is walking with them and they are strongly, I think the word is used in Luke. Is, yeah, we urged him, we urged Jesus strongly saying, stay with us till evening. Philippi was ordained by God to be a beloved congregation. I think it starts with, with Lydia's generosity. I think that she is very much part of this church and very generous in this church. In fact, we see over and over, Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you, Philippi. He says to them, in the early days of my acquaintance, uh, of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I was sent to Macedonia, he writes this in Philip, the letter, now one church shared with me in the matters of giving and receiving except only you. Maybe there's no place to go. Or maybe Paul was staying at a place that was costing him money. And she's urging him, listen, brother, stay with us. I've got room. No, I'm not going to take no for an answer. You know those kind of people. i got a couple of ants like that. Aunts, I think you call them, here up in upstate New York. They're not little things walking on the ground. An aunt, all right? It's an aunt. Want something to eat? No. You're not, you eat because you're not leaving the house. It doesn't matter. Just eat something. It don't matter you just ate. It doesn't matter. Some of you laugh because you got people like that. You're not leaving to eat. So you might as well just eat. All right. You know, she insisted. And we see her generosity. We see her baptism. But not the slave girl. Not the slave girl. Look, look at the slave girl now. Verse 19. When she, when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. You can hear the denunciation in their their tone toward the Jewish people. These men are Jews. And they're disturbing the city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or to practice. The crowd joined them in attacking them. And the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Okay? Now, let me move this one more. So these guys are not only, these guys are not only threatening. These guys are thrown into the inner prison. We would call it the box or SHU. They're in a segregated unit. They're deep in the jail because we're locking these guys up, right? So not only did she get free from her, from her evil spirit, but all the money she was making 
They were not happy about that at all. In fact, in verse 19, when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, it had left her is the same verb that's used in 18, that when the Spirit left her. Luke's got to play on words. Yeah, when you delivered her from the Spirit, guess what? Everything else went out the window. No more money. She's, she's not worth anything for her owners. They were not happy. They were not happy. Um, many of you know who Richard Collier Maybe you don't. He's a historian for the Salvation Army. This is what he writes about persecution. Because when the gospel comes into a life, into a community, into a business that is evil, there are a lot of angry people. Let the gospel infiltrate and take influence and save a bunch of porn stars. Or, or, or a production company that does porn. Or, or an abortion clinic. Some people get saved. And watch how angry people get because you just took something out of my pocket. That's exactly what's happening here. He writes here, uh, Salvation Army writes, Persecution was great, talking about Salvation Army, from the beginning, gangs frequently hurled mud and stone through windows at the preaching of the gospel. The liquor dealers worked hard to have Booth, who started it, kicked out of East London. The police were no help. In fact, they often broke up outdoor meetings and accused Booth, owner of uh, the starter of Salvation Army, accused Booth followers of being the cause of all the trouble. Beatings were not uncommon. In 1889, at least 669 Salvation Army members were assaulted. Some were killed. Some were maimed. Even children were not immune. Right? That's what happens. These owners learn income has gone down. And the gospel changes her life. And now they're throwing them in jail. No due process. Let's just throw him in jail, deepest part of jails. And then it says, what do they do to them? They beat him. They beat them. And that's where we're going to pick up our story next week. Paul and Silas beaten, chained, in the inner prison. No law, no court. It doesn't matter. They're started trouble. They, they took all our money. Let's put them in jail. That's, that's where we pick up. But let me give you two things you're going to walk away with today. Okay? We'll pick up that story next week right there. Two things. Follow me. I want you to catch these two things most importantly. Number one. If you're here this morning and you're trusting in yourself, your moral goodness, your your politeness, your well-behaved manners, your good life, you need the gospel of grace and the work of Jesus on the cross for your sins that he died for you and rose for you in order to be saved. The Bible is clear. The Bible is concise that your moral goodness will never be enough in comparison to the righteousness that is required. God is a holy God. Only Jesus lived a perfect, holy, good life. And only he died an atoning death. And the only way for you to obtain perfect righteousness that is required is to trust in the perfect righteousness of Jesus, that he went to the cross and died for your wickedness, no matter how moral you think you are, no matter how good you think you are, no matter how kind you are, no matter how much giving you are, The Bible says all has sinned and falls short. Lydia had to learn the lesson. It's through Jesus and his righteousness, his moral goodness, all that he has done, not what you have done for you on the cross. Number two, no matter the bondage or the rejection or the rebellion or the depths of sin that you have traveled, the changing power of the gospel is greater than the power of darkness and the darkness that you have been through. Jesus Christ has come to set us free from the bondage of other things that separate us from him. 
Maybe you're here today and you've had multiple sexual relationships that you still feel very lonely. Or years of drug addiction and you still feel empty. No matter what side of the spectrum you are, you need Jesus. Both the religious moralist and the irreligious rebellion avoid Jesus to be Lord and Savior of their life so that they can control their own lives. Irreligious people seek to be their own Savior, their own Lord of their own lives through worldly pride. Nobody could tell me what to do. I'll decide for myself. You don't tell me. No one will tell me. I want control. But moralist people, those who, who live to, to, to do well so that God will love them, seek to be their own Lord, their own Savior through religion. I'm good. I do what's right. I'm not like so-and-so. Look at what they're doing. I'm not like him. God owes me. And, and God, God will have to take me to, to, to heaven. I pray all the time. Their motto is, I obey, and therefore I'm accepted. That's religion. Obedience, moral life, so that God will love me. The gospel is God loves me, accepts me in Christ, and therefore I will live an obedient life. Big difference between the two. The religious person reject Jesus because there's a threat to their own power and authority and religious people reject Jesus because when they see him for who he is and all his glory and splendor, they see their sin and they can't handle that because it's all about pride. But oh, when the gospel, when the gospel really comes into your life, the religious and the irreligious, the moralist sees and savors Christ because the need for grace is made abundant in Christ, and it captures their heart. They finally come to realize that they are naked in their own righteousness, but royally and wonderfully and beautifully clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Oh, when the gospel comes to those in bondage and in rebellion, there is so much freedom, it's hard to describe. Total and wonderful release from slavery to the things that never deliver what they promise. The Americans think freedom is found in casting all restraints, being your own master, doing your own thing. What we're blind to is that we are the master. We are mastered by something. Something will master us. It will demand worship. It will demand for us to get and to have in order for us to feel worthwhile people. Jesus is the only master. When you put him at the center of your life, when your life is revolved around him as Lord and Savior, that when you fail, he forgives you. When you blow it, he loves you. When other people reject you, he receives you. Only Jesus. Your idols don't do that. When Jesus comes and takes center of your life and is Lord and Savior, that beauty will change you. Do you know that? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this narrative. Thank you that Paul was obedient to the call to declare the gospel. Thank you that his prejudices were obviously put aside as he speaks to these, this, this woman, this young woman, and declares the gospel to them. And Lord, thank you for the power of the gospel that changes Lydia, shows her her heart, her moralistic attitudes, and shows her clearly the gospel of grace. And thank you for setting this young slave girl free from bondage and slavery Father, may we never get to the place where we are not declaring and demonstrating the gospel to all people, knowing that you are greater, your power is greater, your mercy is greater, your grace is greater than all our sin. 
And Father, we want to respond and we continue in worship in a way that honors you. So Father, help us to sing for your glory. Help our hearts to respond. Maybe we need to repent of our prejudices. Maybe we need to repent of our moralistic behavior. Maybe there are sins in our lives and bondages in our life that you want to set us free right now as we repent of our sins and turn to you. So we're asking by the power of your spirit that you would reveal Christ to us, that we would all treasure him and love him and worship him as the one true and living God. Come, Holy Spirit. Maybe it's the first time someone's going to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. Today's the day. Give your life to Christ. Stop fighting it. God is opening your heart. Respond. He is Lord and Savior. He died for sins. He rose from the dead. He will return again someday to establish his eternal kingdom. And right now he's asking you to bow your knee. Don't be Lord and Savior of your own life. He's Lord. He created you. He died for you. He rose for you. Respond to him in faith. In Jesus' name.